Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's Briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another of Deep State Radio's one-on-one conversations with leading experts. I'm pleased to have with us here today Evo Dalder, who runs the Chicago Council on Global Affairs uh, and is the co-author of a new book with Jim Lindsay, And it's called The Empty Throne, America's Abdication of Global Leadership. And it is a timely dive into the foreign policy of the Trump era. Um, And although it, you know, it would seem on its face, that's a thing to write about right now for a foreign policy expert. Maybe, Evo, you could start by giving us a little bit of the rationale for choosing to go in this direction with this book. Yeah, really uh, two reasons, uh, David, why we decided to write the book. One, of course, there is a new president and, and he is a he's a different president. Uh, and we wanted to understand how different he was from his predecessors. And the key issue that we focused on was the issue of leadership, whereas every president since Franklin Roosevelt believed in not only a rules-based order, but the necessity of the United States to lead in that order, to maintain it. Uh, Donald Trump came to office thinking that the rules-based order actually was a bad deal for the United States and that the United States shouldn't be leading anymore. It should start focusing on winning. So that was one reason we wanted to talk about uh, his foreign policy. Uh, The second reason, though, is we also wanted to look at uh, a broader evolution of American foreign policy and the reality that that same rules-based order that has been so central for 70 years in American foreign policy was was being challenged. It was fraying. It was in part because of a lack of American leadership that was already occurring earlier on, uh, well before Donald Trump was president, uh, but also because other powers were rising, notably uh, China and posing a challenge to the United States and its leadership role. And there were forces within our own societies and within uh, more uh, Western societies more generally against globalization, in favor of populism and growing nationalism. Uh, In that sense, Donald Trump was a reflection of or a symptom of uh, a a broader cause. So we wanted to see how these two things interacted. Uh, and, And that's why we wrote the book. You know, I've never undertaken a book, and this may reflect on me more than it does on the process of writing a book, but uh, I'll take a risk here. I've never undertaken writing a book where I didn't end up discovering something that I didn't already know. Now, you know, you go into a book with an idea. um, uh, uh, Clearly, you typically write a proposal and you go over it with an editor before you've even gone into the book. But as you dove into this, as you began to explore the inner workings of Trump foreign policy and Trump himself, what surprised you? In some ways, I guess what surprised us that the norm, the image that you find 
in most of the commentary, the day-to-day commentary on administration, is one of chaos. Indeed, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, is all about chaos in the White House. And in fact, it's a chaotic book uh, because it, it, it goes from one place to the other uh, in, in single sentences and, and paragraphs. And that's how one experiences the presidency of Donald Trump. But behind the chaos, there's actually a pretty coherent view that the president has on, the, uh, on, on how the United States should interact with the world. It happens to be a view we don't necessarily agree with. It is also a view we don't think is actually good for American security and prosperity in the long run, but it's a consistent view. It's a view that the United States shouldn't be a leader in the world. It should focus on its own very narrow interest, and it should focus on winning, winning rather than leading. If you lead, if you read the speeches that he, uh, 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 that the president gives, it's remarkable that the word leadership or even the notion of America as the leader of the free world just isn't part of his vocabulary. It's not part of his thinking. It's not central to how he thinks about the world. It's all about beating other people, including our friends and allies, uh, in order to have short-term gains, whether it's in trade or in defense expenditure uh, or what have you. And that's beyond the chaos, uh, which is there, and, and the outrage that one uh, sees on almost a daily basis, there is a consistency. And uh, over time, uh, uh, particularly as you move from 2017 into 2018, the people who, no, who weren't willing uh, to uh, abide by uh, that policy or were, were in conflict with the president on that policy, they had to leave. They were either fired or they resigned. People like Gary Cohn, who couldn't stand the idea of tariffs, people like uh, uh, Rex Tillerson and, and, and uh, General McMaster, uh, who left because, in fact, were, were relieved of duty, I would say, um, because they just didn't see the world in the same terms that Donald Trump does. And now people uh, have surround, who surround him in the White House uh, generally either accept that view or are implementing it, whether they accept it or not. Right. And as we look uh, uh, just in the headlines today and what's likely to come in the next couple of weeks, you had Nikki Haley, who was you know, supportive generally of the president, but sometimes seen as one of the moderating forces. And you've got Secretary of Defense Mattis, who is now, um, uh, uh, you know, rumored to be one of those who are about to leave once we get uh, past the midterms, uh, departing. Um, and so this 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 notion of an axis of adults, but really uh, the idea that there are some people there who are offering a mo- offering a moderating or or more traditional view. Um, uh, is fading into the mist. And and so I wonder to what extent you feel that the Trump view um, is is actually catching on. Is this just the inner workings of an administration where if you don't go along with the president, you're out? Or does the president represent something deeper within the Republican worldview right now or within the national view um, and and we should you know see as as you suggested earlier, this is a, a a symptom. I mean, I particularly think of our allies, who've got to be scratching their heads and wondering, are we going to snap back with the next president, or or is it not that simple? Well, I think it's clearly the case that the Trump view and the, the perspective that the president brings to foreign policy 
is dominant within the administration. And I think some of the last of the resistors, if that's what you want to call it, uh, are, uh, are, are either leaving or are about to leave. I think Mattis in particular has refocused all of his attention to protecting the military uh, from uh, the chaos and the perspective of the president and is no longer uh, in, in the forefront of trying to move the president in, in, in a different direction. We started our book with the famous meeting in the tank, uh, which is the, uh, the, the uh, headquarters, the command center of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon uh, in July of 2017, where uh, Mattis and Tillerson and others are trying to sort of give uh, uh, Trump a, a, a you know, world order 101 course uh, explaining why it's important for us to have bases and embassies and treaties and alliances. And the president at the end says, you know, that's all great, but it's not working for me. Uh, and I think Masters has just given up on that. He's now protecting the military. And he may stay for uh, a while, but he's no longer fighting the president uh, on this issue. So that's one issue. I think if you if, if, if you if you if you uh, Know what Trump is about. That's what we're going to get uh, for as long as Trump is president. Uh, and no one is going to be able to stop him inside the administration. The, the, the broader and bigger question, does Trump represent a new trend in American foreign policy, um, is a more difficult question to, uh, to answer. First, most people don't vote on uh, foreign policy issues and foreign policy perspectives. And so whether his foreign policy view is what, drive, is what is driving his support, uh, whatever that support is, anywhere between 38 and 42 percent in the American public, uh, is questionable. Uh, secondly, we at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs uh, do annual opinion polls uh, on uh, U.S. public attitudes on foreign policy. And in our polls, we're seeing a growing support for what we would call internationalism, traditional American internationalism growing support for trade, growing support for alliances, growing support for an active American role in shared leadership with other countries and institutions, growing support for international agreements uh, and wanting to work with others. So in that sense, uh, at least in the public perspective, there is no uh, sense that this is where uh, the country is going. Uh, third, then, is what are the people uh, outside the United States thinking, and particularly, as you mentioned, the allies. And they're looking at this and they're saying, um, this is completely new. This is very different. And frank, frankly, it's, it's quite dangerous. Uh, and they are wondering how long it will last. I do think the 2020 election, both whether there is a challenge within the Republican, from the Republicans uh, to, to Donald Trump, and there's a challenge to, uh, to him from that side, and what the nature of the Democratic opposition is going to be and who wins is something that is going to have a particular influence on how the rest of the world looks at us. For now, we think they think uh, uh, not much of it, uh, and they're worried about it, uh, except if you're China, which is increasingly seeing the vacuum that American absence of leadership has created, and they're filling it. Well, you know, as you look at this, you know, you cast, in, in some respects, the, the narrative of the book and the in the context of the fact that at the end of the second world war, the generation uh, then in power sought to establish a global order, put America at the front of that global order. 
uh, and set the tone and tenor for the next three quarters of a century, essentially, of American leadership. Um, and that we may be at a different point, not just in terms of Trump, but in terms of those underlying attitudes. And it manifests itself in several ways. You know, for example, the far right and the far left are distrust, distrustful of globalization and international trade terms. Um, and there is a sort of prevailing sense in the U.S. that Trump taps into again and again and again of fear of the outside world, whether it's terrorists or whether it's immigrants, refugees. You know, he talks of building walls. He talks of trying to isolate America off. He talks of America first, which is a slogan that throws back to the 1930s and an isolationist movement then. Um, has You know, one has to, you know, worry that something has fundamentally gone wrong with our leaders that we have not made the case that engagement with the world is in our interests. Do you, do you, do you feel that part of the Trump phenomenon is, is it needs to be laid at the doorstep of, uh, you know, other leaders who, who failed to, uh, to make that case? Yeah. In some ways I do. I think we are on in an inflection point and, and Trump may be accelerating it, but it's also, posing uh, in, in a more clear-eyed way the choice that is in front of us. Uh, I do think that there, are, that there are forces, the ones you described, against globalization, a fear of the outside, a fear of, of changes in our own society being brought about by uh, the changing demographics, a fear of terrorism and, and immigration. And all of that, uh, I think you, you, you see growing, you see a a tendency to politicize and use as, as, a, as a mobilizing aspect uh, the fear of the other. Uh, and that is leading to some of the darker sides of our politics. And it's not just in the United States, by the way. It's happening uh, throughout much of Europe as well, and in some places quite successfully, at least for the leaders who are in power. Uh, and uh, the, the, the counter-resistance uh, counter hasn't really caught on yet, uh, in part because I think we have taken for granted uh, the, uh, the, the rules-based order that was created. We sort of thought that this was something that may have, you know, was just the natural order of things. But it's not. It's a, it was a deliberate choice uh, by leaders who were far-sighted, uh, to the, who decided that it was important in order for our peace and security to be, secu uh, to be safeguarded, in order for us to be prosperous, to create a system in which others would benefit at least as much as we would, and in some ways would benefit more. I mean, the Germans and the Japanese coming out of World War II uh, benefited m much more in some ways uh, from the system than even the United States did. But we all benefited together, and we haven't really defended it. We haven't really made a, a good argument for why it matters uh, and what, how the alternative is, is much darker, uh, more competitive, and includes the possibility of a return to great power war um, and, and in part, that's why we wrote the book to say, listen, there were real decisions that were made in the 1940s and 50s uh, that American leaders uh, kept uh, uh, kept abreast of and, and made sure that we continue to uh, play a, a leading role in the world. And when it when it goes, as it is, has gone under this president, uh, the consequences are severe. And we need to stop and make sure that uh, it, that we, 
is this the direction that we want to go? Is it really true that we want to live in a much more competitive world, in a zero-sum world of win-lose, rather than the world of win-win uh, that has been part of uh, our foreign policy for a long time? So let me let me end with two questions. Two questions that'll be really important to the tens of thousands of people who listen to Deep State Radio, who are by definition, as they describe themselves, kind of foreign policy nerds. They're down in the weeds of this. And to have a book like this by two distinguished guys like yourself and Jim um, really, really go in and provide the first thoughtful breakdown of the entirety of the Trump foreign policy, um, it, it, it is essential reading. It is the kind of book that they will want to go into. But I know that Two questions will emerge uh, at the forefront of their minds. And the first one is, what's your diagnosis? You know, where is the damage being done to America standing in the world the greatest? Clearly, there are a lot of bad policies. There's a lot of bad processes. There's a lot of narcissism at the top and dysfunction throughout the system. But if I had to say to you, name one or two or three areas where you're most concerned that damage is being done, what would those be? So I think the core damage that's being done is to the idea of trust. Uh, the entire system that the United States set up and its leadership in specifically is based on trust. It's based on the belief by other countries that the United States not only will lead uh, the rules-based order, but will do so in a way that is conducive not only to American interests, but to the interests of those who are also part of the system or are benefiting from it. That trust is broken down. And just like in a marriage, when trust breaks down, it's extraordinarily difficult to repair it. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's very, very difficult. And as a result, countries, and particularly our allies, are starting to say, maybe we can no longer rely on the United States. In fact, that's what they're now publicly saying. Maybe we need to find other alignments. And some of those alignments may well be a decision to say, maybe we need to be closer to Russia uh, because we don't want to be taken in by Russia. Or we need to be closer to China. Uh, or alternatively, which is what I would support, Maybe we, as like-minded democratic countries, uh, should band together and try to figure out a way to uphold the rules-based order, even in the absence of American leadership. But if you look at what's happening in Canada, which has started a Department of Trade diversification because it can no longer rely on the, on the likelihood of trade with the United States, or you look at a country like France, which has decided that uh, it now really does need a European military focus that is no longer reliant on the United States. Uh, you're starting to ask, uh, see countries moving in the trade realm and the security realm in ways that are not conducive to America's interests. And it's all because the fundamental trust that held the system together is broken. So building on that diagnosis, the last question is, what's the prognosis? What are, what are, what are you anticipating going forward? Do you see backlash against Trump within his own party, backlash from the Democrats? Do you see America continuing down this vein? Uh, do you see others stepping up? I mean, are we are we sort of permanently done with the old American idea of leadership? And do we have to now permanently accept the idea that China or Europe or others are going to step up 
and uh, into those places. I, you know, look look forward beyond the next few weeks. So I, I think there there's sort of three possibilities which we which we lay out in the book. One is that we return to a international political system akin to the 1930s, everybody taking care of themselves, a, a highly competitive system that is deeply unstable and is likely over time to lead to greater conflict, including war, uh, a, a world in disarray. The second possibility is that another power uh, increasingly takes uh, hold of the international order and shapes it in its own image. And there's only one power that can do that, and that is China. So that you would have a more China-focused international order, and that may be good for China, but it's not particularly good for the United States or indeed for anybody else. And the third is that we uh, uh, we find a way for the allies in particular to uphold uh, the rules-based order and have a, a debate in the United States, as one would hope one had in 2020, about the American role uh, in the world and a decision looking back at what damage that has been done under the Trump administration, that something new uh, is necessary. And I can see that coming, frankly, uh, not just from the Democratic side. I can also see it coming from the Republican side. Uh, just if you look at the damage that will have been done by the trade war that the president started over the past few months, uh, it's going to have a deep impact in Republican uh, circles. And there is no reason why uh, a Republican challenge to Trump uh, isn't, you know, is, is, is foreclosed by definition. For now, it doesn't seem likely. Uh, but as the cost of the foreign policy that the president has pursued uh, become real, uh, I think we may have a debate in this country about the future direction of policy and hopefully then have a president uh, who, uh, whether it's a he, but he or she, will again lead the United States together with our allies to maintain a rules-based order that has served us extraordinarily well for 75 years. Well, thank you, Evo. You know, if we do have that debate, I hope it is informed by people who have read books like The Empty Throne, America's Abdication of Global Leadership by Evo Dalger and James Lindsay, uh, which is available on Amazon and everywhere else. Uh, it's the kind of thoughtful analysis of foreign policy that we need. Uh, these are not issues that can be assessed uh, or adjudicated in the Twitterverse. Uh, and... Uh, Frankly, there are not enough books out there that do this. This is exactly the kind of book that you want, if you are a Deep State Radio listener, uh, to help inform you uh, and uh, to help you be a leader as we go and we tackle these next generation issues. Uh, so go get it by the book. And thank you very, very much, Evo, for spending this time with us. Thanks, David. I appreciate the time. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.